So this Lord's Day, we're going to be continuing our study of the doctrine of God, and we have arrived at our lesson on the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. As we look through the scripture, one thing that must be admitted from the outset is that you cannot find the word Trinity anywhere in its pages. The absence of this word has caused many heretics and cults to reason that as a result, the doctrine of the Trinity is unfounded. It's a totally man-made teaching, foreign to the pages of scripture. That it was the early church bringing in pagan ideas and platonic philosophies into the scriptures. Listen to this from the Jehovah's Witnesses in a publication that they have called, Should You Believe in the Trinity? Historian Will Durant observed, Christianity did not destroy paganism. It adopted it. From Egypt came the ideas of a divine trinity. And in the book Egyptian Religion, Siegfried Morens notes, the trinity was a major preoccupation of Egyptian theologians. Three gods are combined and treated as a single being, addressed in the singular. In this way, the spiritual force of Egyptian religion shows a direct link with Christian theology. Thus, in Alexandria, Egypt, Churchmen of the late 3rd and early 4th centuries, such as Athanasius, reflected this influence as they formulated ideas that led to the Trinity. Their own influence spread so that Morens considers Alexandrian theology as the intermediary between the Egyptian religious heritage and Christianity. And also, while Plato did not teach the Trinity in its present form, his philosophies paved the way for it. Later philosophical movements that included triadic beliefs sprang up, and these were influenced by Plato's ideas of God and nature. End quote. Are they and other groups like the Mormons, the Oneness Pentecostals, and the Unitarians, are they correct in their assertion? While it is true that the word Trinity may not be found in the Bible, it is absolutely false that the concept is without warrant and is not there. One thing that is important for us to consider when looking at this doctrine, and not only this doctrine, but any other doctrine in the scripture is the principle of making a necessary inference or an unavoidable conclusion through deductive reasoning. See, of the things taught in the Bible, there are some things that are expressly stated, like stealing being wrong. Other things which are taught in scripture are not as expressly stated, but are still taught nonetheless. It is important for us to remember this important fact. Any conclusion that can be logically deduced is as true as an express statement. Now this may sound controversial at first, but upon reflection, it is easy to see how this is so. I'll give you an example. My wife is allergic to shellfish. I know she's allergic to shellfish because she's told me that she's allergic to shellfish. So now if we go to a restaurant, I know to avoid ordering shrimp. Well, why is that? She didn't tell me that she's allergic to shrimp. She told me she's allergic to shellfish. True, but if premise A is true that Deborah's allergic to shellfish, and premise B is also true that shrimp is a kind of shellfish, then she doesn't need to tell me that she's allergic to shrimp. I can make the deduction 
that therefore she should not eat shrimp. She didn't have to expressly tell me that. That is a necessary inference that I made if those premises are true. In the same way, there are many theological truths which the Bible teaches that are deduced logically by this principle. Our own confession in chapter one tells us this, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from scripture. For example, when we look at Mark chapter 12, verse 26, and I won't go too deep into this, but then our assistant pastor Jason has preached on this before. But the burning bush and the resurrection, if you remember this passage where Jesus says, but regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Again, I encourage you to listen to the sermon that Jason preached on this, but I want to point out this fact from this passage. See, Jesus is pointing to the resurrection of the dead from the passage of Moses and the burning bush that we see in Exodus chapter 3. However, when you actually read this passage, you don't find anything expressly stating this fact. Yet, Jesus uses this passage to point to, the tr to that truth and scolded the Sadducees, remember, for saying that they, and saying that they don't understand the scripture. They did not know their Bible, not because they could not understand what was expressly stated, but because they could not make the necessary deduction from the Bible. Now, I don't want to get too far in the weeds in regards to this, but I do want to make clear that in me saying this, I am not granting credence to every wild conclusion that people draw. Unfortunately, in our day and age, we have not been properly taught how to uh, reason logically. So what people think of as an inference, a lot of times, are just conjectures. So I'm not trying to give, give credence to every type of wild conclusion, but I do want us to understand that, um, that this fact of, of the fact that if something is logically deduced, that is as true as an express statement. So with that understanding, we need to ask ourselves this question. Do the expressly stated propositions in the Bible force us to make the unavoidable conclusion that there is one God who exists in three persons? Or to put it plainly, does the Bible force us to affirm the doctrine of the Trinity? I think it will be clear that the only conclusion that can be drawn if you are a Bible-believing Christian is that the Bible teaches this doctrine. Another quick note that I would like to add is the claim made by many cults and heretics that the early church and the early church fathers did not have this formulated doctrine of the Trinity. So if we're going to make a proper understanding of the Trinity, that point, that mark of delineation, pointing out who's a Christian, and who is not, then we're going to have to cast off a lot of, of the early church into hell. So while it is true that we may not find the most properly, carefully worded explanation of the Trinity from some of the early church fathers, this misses a point that was the case then and is even the case now. See, the reason for the eventual crystallization 
of this doctrine of the Trinity was because of heresies that crept up in the early church that forced the church to lay out what the Bible taught. See, it has always been the case throughout church history that doctrine becomes crystallized through heresies and issues that come about, like Arianism, Sabellianism, things such as this. Whether it was the doctrine of the Trinity, or justification, or God's role in salvation, marriage, today, biblical inerrancy, and race, and much more. Problems come up that forces the church to come together and to search the scriptures and to make clear what God says regarding, this, regarding these matters. So when you look at, for example, what we're dealing with now in regards to gender confusion, and you were to go back, for example, 500 years ago and read you know, some of the literature from whether it's Martin Luther or John Calvin or Zwingli, if we were to look at their writings and hypothetically speaking, notice them utilizing phrases that we may not use now because of what it may imply pertaining to gender confusion, it would be silly for us to say that they did not believe in two genders, male and female, because of what they wrote, because that was not an issue for them. They understood clearly what the Bible taught. So going back to the church fathers, see, we must understand them in their historical context and remember that it took time for the doctrine to be clarified and worded in the manner that we see, for example, in the Nicene Creed or even in our own confession of faith. So of all that being said, let's now turn and take a look at what the Bible tells us about the three persons, starting with the Father, the first person of the Trinity. And in determining biblical support for this idea of the Trinity, most opponents have no qualms regarding the Father or what we would consider as the first person of the Trinity. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation makes the point that there is one God. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Isaiah 45 verse 21 tells us, declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. And then we see Paul writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. So in trying to establish the groundwork for understanding and support of the Trinity, what Christians throughout church history did and what we will be doing is point out the instances in which both the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ are identified as God. But first, I do want to point out that while the Trinity may not as, be as clearly described in the Old Testament, there are definitely passages that point us in that direction. For example, when you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, you see Moses writing, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness. God did not say, Let me make man in my image, according to my likeness. But let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Those two little words, us and our, should not be glossed over because they let us know in the very first chapter of the Bible that this God who created the universe is way more complex than we might think. Another passage is in the book of Genesis. We'll stay there and look at Genesis chapter 16, 
verses 7 through 13. And in this passage, I will read it. Now, the angel of the Lord found her, this is Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, behold, you are with child and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild man, a wild donkey of a man, and his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Notice how the angel communicates with her. There is no the thus saith the Lord, but rather he communicates as though he is the Lord. And Hagar, realizing who she is talking to, says, you are a God who sees. And when she makes that statement, angel of the Lord does not correct her for calling him God. And then we have another passage, which I won't take the time to read, but in Genesis 32, verses 24 through 32, this is the account of Jacob wrestling with God. And Jacob says in this passage, when you read it on your own time, that he has seen God face to face. But hold on one second. I thought God was a spirit. So who was it that Jacob saw? Who was it that Jacob wrestled with? Could it have been the pre-incarnate Christ? We also have passages in the Old Testament where, as Robert Raymond in his Systematic Theology points out, a plural noun is used to refer to God. A couple of instances that he gives. Psalm 149, verse 2. Let Israel be glad in his maker. And as he notes, maker literally rendered is makers. In Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. And again, he notes creator literally rendered is creators. So while these passages and many more that I don't have time to get into don't make the definitive case, for the Trinity, there is a dim light that is being shown in these passages that do point us in that direction. So there's no argument about God the Father. But what about the Son, Jesus Christ? It seems that throughout history, there's been nothing but arguments regarding who he truly is. So what do the scriptures tell us about him? Let's go to a passage in the New Testament, the prologue to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, and we'll read the first four verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is probably as clear as it gets, at the very beginning of John's gospel, he tells us about the word. He notes how in the beginning, the word was already there. So that lets us know that he was not created. 
John also lets us know that he was with God, which lets us know that there's some distinction between the Word and God. Then, John lets us know that the Word was God. And what's interesting about that last clause, and the Word was God, is that John constructed this phrase in such a way that the only faithful rendering or way to translate this from the Greek is how we have it. He did not mean that the word was a God, as the New World Translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses claim, for there's no article in the Greek to suggest that translation. Nor was he trying to say that the word was divine, for there's another Greek word that he could have used if that was the case. No, John used theos to make it clear that the word was God. John also lets us know in verse 2 that the word was in the beginning with God. So again, the word was not created in the beginning, but was already there. Put another way, the word was eternal. And you know, when you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where we see, let us make man in our image, that starts to make a lot more sense when you understand that the word was there with the Father from the beginning. In verse 3, John now tells us that all things came into being through the word, and apart from the word, nothing came into being that has come into being. So put another way, he created everything, and there was nothing that was created apart from him. This clearly links the word with God, for we know that, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. <clears throat> we have another passage in the interest of time in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, which let me turn to and I will read. Again, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Actually, I'll start in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In this passage, we have a beautiful reminder of Jesus Christ humbling himself. Though God and ruler of the universe, he took the form of man and humbled himself to the point of death. And now my point in bringing this verse out is not to point to that, his humility, but rather to make the point that as Paul is writing this, he alludes in um, what he alludes to, excuse me, in verses 9 through 11, Paul, Paul's quoting from an Old Testament passage. I'll read verses 9 through 11 again. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Passage that Paul is quoting is Isaiah 45, verse 23, which if you read, it says, 
I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. So God swears that every knee will bow and every tongue will pledge allegiance to him. But yet we see in verses 10 and 11 in Philippians, Paul make note that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Either we have a contradiction here, or Paul is clearly telling us that Jesus is God. Then we have Titus 2, verse 13, which says, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In this passage, Paul emphatically makes the declaration, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. How could anyone argue with that? Well, if you're asking that question, then you've never dealt with heretics or lawyers. The argument from the other side is regarding whether our English translation of what's stated in the Greek is correct. Many opponents of the Trinity claim that this passage should be rendered with the distinction between great God and Savior. Going back to the New World Translation, and I know it sounds like I'm picking on the Jehovah's Witnesses a lot, but they use this a lot. And then one, since this whole quarantining, I've been getting a lot of cold calls from Jehovah's Witnesses. They've been on my mind. So I hope they're actually listening. But if you look at the New World Translation and how they render this verse, it writes, while we wait for the happy hope and glorious manifestation of the great God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ, they try to make that distinction. And one point that I want to make regarding this, based on the grammatical construction, the most natural way to render this passage is in the manner translated as our great God and Savior. Listen to what Robert Raymond writes. According to the Granville Sharp rule, when two nouns of the same case are connected by chi, a single article before the first noun denotes conceptual unity, whereas the repetition of the article with both nouns denotes particularity. In other words, and, and let me explain it, basically what he's getting at is this. If Paul wanted to make a distinction between God the Father and Jesus Christ in this passage, he, would have, he could have easily done so by adding a single article before Savior. That would have made it perfectly clear and unambiguous. But he did not because he meant what he said when he called Jesus our God and Savior. And what's interesting is that there are other passages where although they don't say our God and Savior, they do employ the same construction that necessitates the translation that we saw in this passage. Second Peter 1 verse 11, for example, we see Peter writing, For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. And then we see in 2 Peter 2.20, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then in Philippians 4.20, we see Paul writing, now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. And what's interesting to, to note, again, if you take the time to look at you know, the New World Translation, what's funny is all of these passages using the same construction are accurately translated. So it seems like their improper rendering of Titus 2.13 is based more on their presupposition denying God um, the deity of Jesus Christ, rather than a faithful rendering and consistent rendering of the Greek. Besides these passages that I've mentioned, we have other passages 
Um, Colossians 2, 9, for in him all the fullness of deity deity dwells in bodily form. Hebrews 1 verse 3, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Then we have John 20 verse 28, Thomas answered and said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. These are just a few of the passages that attest to Jesus as God. There's one more person that we need to get to, the Holy Spirit. Of the three, he is the person least understood. Some people see him as something you can catch. I went to church today and I caught the Holy Ghost. Others see him as a force. But who he is in reality is God. For example, we see in the book of Acts, chapter 5, the famous story of Ananias and Sapphira. The fact of, and I'll just, I'll just read here. And <clears throat> let's see, verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? When it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. In this passage, Paul is clearly making the case that Ananias and Sapphira lie to God when they lied against the Holy Spirit, when they lied to, excuse me, the Holy Spirit. And then we have other passages where we note the Holy Spirit speaking. Acts chapter 10, verses 19 through 20, we have this. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs, and accompanying them, accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. And then we have in Acts 13, verse 2, this, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So in both of these passages, we see the Holy Spirit speaking, clearly indicating a personal property. And then we have in Acts 28 verses 25 to 27, Luke writing this, and when they did not agree, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers as saying, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears, they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return. And I would heal them. Paul is quoting from Isaiah chapter six, nine through 10. And when you go and look at the book of Isaiah, it is clear who was speaking, God. Yet Paul says that it was the Holy Spirit that spoke. And last passage, Matthew 12, 31 through 32. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We have Jesus saying, therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. Can you blaspheme a force? Can you speak ill of wind? The fact that Jesus states that one can blaspheme the Holy Spirit at the very least lets us know that the Holy Spirit is not a thing, but a person. 
So if it is true, as we have seen in these passages, that multiple persons are described as God, how do we not fall into either tritheism in believing that three gods exist or symbolianism, excuse me, or modalism in asserting that God exists in different modes that manifest itself? To answer this, I want to turn to another passage staying in the book of Matthew. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 19, where Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If what we have in this passage, in Jesus giving the Great Commission, is something interesting. In the commission, he commands them to preach the gospel and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In this passage, Jesus makes two things clear. See, in commanding to baptize in the name, singular, he is making clear that there is one God whom we are to um, be baptized into. In stating in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Jesus distinguishes the persons within the Godhead. Had Jesus had meant to say that there are three gods or three distinct divine beings, he would have stated for us to be baptized in the names, plural, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Had Jesus meant that there was one divine being and also one person, he would have commanded for us to be baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Jesus did not do that. He made the distinction. And thus, we do as Christians need to make that distinction. Speaking of distinctions, a distinction must be made between being, essence, and person. Now, admittedly, for most people, it's very difficult to separate the idea of being from personhood because every single human being is his own person as well. And when we do find a human with multiple personalities, we call him schizophrenic. So, it isn't easy for us to wrap our minds around the fact of being in personhood. Robert Raymond, he writes, today the word person is commonly misunderstood by Orthodox theologians to refer in the Trinitarian context to a conscious self-ego that is a self-center or a center of self-consciousness. John Calvin writes it in this way, by person then I mean a subsistence in the divine essence, a subsistence which while related to the other two, is distinguished from by incommunicable properties. Now I'll try to explain what this means. But real quick, being, as I mentioned, you know, would be his substance, his essence. So to put another way, which I hope helps, being refers to what God is, and person refers to who God is. And the Bible makes perfectly clear that there is one being that is God. I won't read these verses again, but I gave them to you earlier. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Isaiah 45, verse 21, and 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4. From an ontological standpoint, or pertaining to his being, we affirm that there is one God, the same as substance, equal in power and glory. From a theological standpoint, we call this the ontological trinity. From the aspects of the aspect of the trinity's being, we affirm that there is no difference in substance. They are equal. When we say, as we do in our shorter catechism, question four, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, that is the case for all three members of the Godhead. 
And while the scriptures so clearly articulate that there is one God, we also see those three persons mentioned as God being assigned different roles. Now, this is what we call in theology the economic trinity. This is where each person carries a different responsibility as it pertains to the economy of redemption. Now, I don't have time to go through these verses, but I do encourage you to read them. We know from searching the scriptures that the Father is the one who elects, the Son is the one who saves. Uh, uh, Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 in regards to what I mentioned regarding the Father. The Son is the one who saves. Just look at John 3, 16, a very well-known passage. And the Holy Spirit is the one who applies redemption. Take a look at a passage like Ezekiel, chapter 36, 26 through 27, in your spare time. Now, the fact that each member of the Trinity carries out a different role does not mean that one person is greater than the other. Now, this is not a perfect analogy. Quite frankly, there's never a perfect analogy when you're trying to, you know, compare the Trinity. But I hope it at least helps to, to get what I'm trying to get at here. See, even though a husband and a wife may have different roles within the home, that does not mean that the husband is greater than the wife or vice versa. Likewise, when we see the son submitting to the will of the father, that does not place him in a rank lower than the father. It is within God's eternal plan of redemption that the distinctions really do become very apparent. While the members of the Godhead are united in their goal, they're differentiated in their responsibilities in carrying out this eternal plan of redemption. You know, our confession states, the father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. So one basically follows the other. But see, we know that all three members are eternal. So how do we wrap our minds around this? This statement only makes sense if you understand their roles in redemptive history and how each one faithfully carries out their unique roles. Take a look at John. Chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. Again, don't have the time. I'm already way over my time, but read it for yourself. We see the word becoming flesh and coming into the world to save men. And then we see in John chapter 15, verse 26, the spirit being sent out by the father and the son to point back to Jesus. Each member carries a specific task in the glorious plan of redemption. And it is their faithfulness to their roles that enables us to note the different persons within the Godhead. Or as Lewis Burkhoff wrote, the fuller revelation of the Trinity in the New Testament is due to the fact that the word became flesh and that the Holy Spirit took up his abode in the church, end quote. So as I hope you can see, the doctrine of the Trinity is not some concept that does not have solid backing in the pages of Scripture. The Bible screams the revelation, this revelation, from Genesis to the book of Revelation. There is one God, but that one God exists in three persons. The Father is God, the Son, Jesus Christ, is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. The mystery of the inner working of the Trinity is far beyond our comprehension as mere men, but we cannot deny what God has revealed to us in his word. We believe in the Trinity because the Bible teaches the Trinity. This is the God that we confess, and this is the God we love and serve. 
He is the Holy Trinity. Now in the words of Paul, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This ends my lesson for today, next Lord's Day. We will discuss the incommunicable attributes of God.